My name is Pastor Matt. I'm a, a, one of the associate pastors here at Nowood. I just want to welcome you here. Uh, thanks, Dave, for leading in the family worship time. I'll be praying for our teachers as well as they go downstairs with our kids, teaching them from God's word. Uh, it's always a joy uh, to see these kids up here learning about the gospel, learning about what Jesus has done for them. Continue to be praying for them and their families as they disciple their kids together. Well, it's good to be with you this morning, a joy to be uh, opening God's word together, be worshiping our God. Uh, as you uh, open your Bibles to Acts 17, that's where we're going to be uh, together this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, you can take that, you can take that home, that's our gift to you. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Uh, and if you want to turn to page 540, that's where Acts 17 will be in that blue Bible. Well, world-changing news is good, but it can also be tough to take sometimes. Because it means a big change in our lives. It means something big is happening. For example, getting married is a very big and good thing, <laughs> but it can be, it can be tough because there's a big change that is happening. Uh, getting pregnant, right? Bringing kids into this world. Parents, I'm sure you know, it's a very exciting time and it's good news, but there's a lot to go with it, right? Maybe taking on that new job, maybe moving to a different city, a uh, different country, whatever it may be, there's good, big, world-changing stuff in our lives, and it's good, but it can be tough as well. See, as we're continuing in Acts, Paul, Silas, and Timothy have some world-changing news that they are bringing on this secondary mission trip. Uh, they were in Philippi, and now they're moving to Thessalonica. And we'll see two different reactions on how people take this world-changing news and how it affects their world. And it begs us the question, how will we respond to God's world-changing news, his world-changing word that he has for us? Do you trust him in the changes that it brings to your world? Are you trusting God and his word as you go out with this news? Because if you don't, either it really shows that either we don't think that God's word is good enough, for our life to take hold of it, to rest in it? Or we don't think that it's worth going and sharing with others and will changing enough for them. But I pray that as we read through Acts 17 that we'll see the world-changing word that God has for us, the amazing truth of the gospel and how Paul brings that to the church in Thessalonica, to those people there, and how God changes their world. And that we would ask those same questions to us this morning. So let's turn to Acts 17. We're going to be going from verses 1 to 9, a short little passage here, uh, but filled with gospel truth and filled with God's faithfulness and power. So let's read through Acts 17 together this morning. God's word says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded to, and joined Paul and Silas, 
as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and, and the rest, they let them go. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I pray in Jesus' precious name that we would stand in awe of you this morning, God. As we open your word together, God, may your holiness, your majesty, and your power just come forth as we hear from your word this morning. God, your word is truth. And may we see it rightly as that. Lord, grant us a hunger and thirst for your truth. Lord, guide us in wisdom and understanding that we would know the meaning of this text. God, that how it points us to Christ. Lord, increase our love for you and our love for one another through this. Lord, help us apply this passage to our lives today that we would be changed by your word through the working of your Holy Spirit, that we would be obedient followers of Christ. And Lord, help me to preach your word with boldness and gentleness, that you will be center, that you'll be glorified as you continue to save and sanctify your people. Lord, do a mighty work that only you can this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I said, Paul is continuing on this missionary journey with Silas and Timothy, and Luke is coming along as he's recording this, to spread the gospel, and he heads to the capital of the Roman province in Macedonia called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a hub with hundreds of thousands of people there. God led uh, this group there, and practically it made sense to put some effort into Thessalonica because there were so many people, and it was central to the cities around them. Right? If, the, if God gets a hold of Thessalonica, then the spread of the gospel will go forth all the more. If more people come to Christ, it will continue to spread. Later, the church here in Thessalonica became very significant within Paul's ministry. If you uh, know of First and Second Thessalonians, that is this church that Paul establishes. He will be sending them two letters, teaching and encouraging them in Christ, encouraged by their faith and how their faith spreads. He begins, as was his custom, at the synagogue of the Jews. He's done this before in other places. It was his strategy as he first enters a new town or new city to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and to preach and share the gospel. Three days on the Sabbath, so over these three weeks, as the Jews came to uh, put aside work, they would gather to worship and keep this commandment that God had given them to come together to worship and trust in him and to represent this covenant that they had with God. And so this missionary group was bringing this good news of Jesus Christ and the new covenant in him. So why did, why did Paul do this? Why was he going to the synagogue? What was the point of going here? Well, it was a connection point, and it was practical. It made sense. Paul was Jewish, and he was a Roman citizen, and the Jews and God-fearing devote Greeks would already have some context in Scripture. They'd already have a bit of an understanding of what 
Paul was about to do as he shared from Scripture. It points us to think about, do we have our eyes open? Do we kind of have these same strategies and thoughts as we go to share the gospel? Where can God use you in the ways that he's gifted you, in the places that he's put you to go and share the gospel? Do you have these gospel goggles on to see opportunity to share? I always think food is a great connection because everyone loves food and everybody needs food. Right? We all love food. We all need food. You can use food as a great connection point with people. Right? Having a barbecue at your house, ordering pizza, going out for dinner with someone. You can use food as a connection with your neighbors, fellow students, people from your work, to touch base, to have a connection, to build relationship and share the gospel as you talk with them, right? Jesus did this all the time as he talked about the bread of life and him being that bread, right? People understood. It's a simple concept. We should ask this question, how has God gifted and equipped you? How has he made you? Because it wasn't for no reason. It was for his intended purposes. He has you exactly where you are right now to use you to grow his kingdom because he can do that through you with the giftings that he has given you. Maybe you're at your boring, deadbeat job, not just because you need the money, but because God wants to use you there. Maybe you're wrestling through four years of school, not to just start this career that you have, but because God has other students there who are doing the same thing so that you can share the gospel with them. Trust in God. Trust his plan. Trust that he can use you to share the gospel. And so Paul goes and makes this connection. And he does this three times as he goes and shares three Sabbath days. Right? He doesn't just try once and then give up and leave. Right? He goes three times to share from the scriptures, to uh, go and do three things as he proclaims this truth. He reasoned, he explained, and he proved that the Christ needed to suffer, needed to die, and needed to rise again. And he used God's word to do it. So he reasoned with them, right? There was a conversation, there was a discussion. They needed to talk about scripture. They needed to talk about what was going on here. What is scripture really saying? What's the important uh, news that Paul is bringing? And so he did this, and he did this from scripture. You can see that in verse two, right? Paul went in, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He opened up the Bible. He opened up scripture to them and read from it and pointed to it. And from that, he explained to them what it truly meant. God's revelation of who he is centering on Jesus on the cross. Right? He explained that. He pointed to it. How the gospel is connecting in all of scripture. And he proved to them. And he set before them evidence. He pointed at it. He said, look right here. Scripture says this. This is what it means. Can't you see how these connections are coming together? He proved to them. This is what we call uh, biblical theology. This is what Paul did. There's a great book actually in our uh, resource section over there in the cafe. Uh, a book called Biblical Theology, so you can't miss it. Very simple title. I like that. Uh, but the author, Nick Rourke, says this, Biblical theology attempts to read the whole story of the Bible and asks how each part relates to the whole. Reading the Bible as one story by one divine author 
that culminates in who Jesus is and what he has done. So that every part of scripture is understood in relation to him. To put it simply, the hero of the Bible is Jesus. That's what this is saying. It's all centering on Jesus. And Jesus actually does this himself. In Luke 24, in two parts of verses 25 to 27, also 44 to 47, Jesus meets with his disciples, and it says uh, in verse uh, 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus walked through them and pointed in all the scriptures how it was pointing to him, how he fulfilled all these promises, how he was the one who accomplished and fulfilled these things. As a youth group this past year, we actually walked through, we're walking through Genesis. We've only gone to for, uh, chapter 15, finished that off. Uh, it's been very encouraging to see young people opening God's word together. Uh, but there's a very important verse as we've been walking through Genesis that we keep going back to. Hopefully they remember what it is. Uh, it's in Genesis 3, verse 15. And this verse is what people call the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. It's where God first showed this promise that he had, that in time, a Savior is going to come. If you turn to Genesis 3, very beginning of your Bible, you can read it with me. God talking to the snake as humanity fell into sin, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Throughout, as you continue to walk through Genesis, the question that you should be asking is, who is this offspring that is going to be coming? And offsprings keep coming, but they keep failing, and they keep sinning, because humanity is now in this cycle of sinning and falling into sin, and their relationship with God is broken, and they needed a Savior, they needed someone. And you continue on through the Bible, and you keep asking this question, and spoiler alert, the offspring is Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. He has crushed Satan through his death and resurrection on the cross, the biting of the heel. But he will crush the head of the snake and put a full end to him. And he will return and sin will be no more. But the Bible doesn't actually stop there with these connections. As we continue to go through it, right, some familiar stories that maybe you've heard. Noah's Ark, right, as we've walked through that as a youth group, God faithfully saved Noah from the flood. Uh, Noah trusted God, and often what we're told is that's what we should do. We need to trust God as well, which is true. But there's a deeper application to it. See, it points to the fact that Jesus is our ark. He is the greater ark because he saved us from the judgment that we deserve through sin and death. Eternity in hell, which is much worse than just death from a flood. Jesus is the ark that brings us through the waters of judgment to the other side and to safety, to eternity with God in true relationship with him. Right? Abraham and Isaac, as God promised his son to Abraham and then said, I need you to sacrifice him to me, Abraham goes to faithfully do so and trusts God to do something with it, and God provides a ram so that Isaac didn't have to be killed. We think, oh, maybe I need to be faithful like Abraham and just trusting God. True, but it points to something deeper. Jesus was the sacrifice provided for us that went on the altar, who died in our place, whose blood was spilled, 
so that we wouldn't have to. He was the one who died on the cross to save us from our sin and restore our relationship with God, that we could worship him. We can continue to go through the Bible. Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the one who brings about a greater exodus as he saves a people for himself. David and Goliath. David was a faithful king who sought to fight the giant, but Jesus is the greater king of kings who defeats our giant of sin. I could go on, but I think you get the point. Scripture centers on Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the better ark. He's the more holy sacrifice. He's the greater Passover lamb. He's the greater exodus. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the greater prophet. He's the word of God. He's the greater Moses, the great high priest. Jesus is the Christ, and he's the son of God who died for our sins and who rose again. That's why it's so important to ask every time that we open God's word, how does this point me to Jesus? How does Jesus fulfill this? What's the gospel application here? Because if you're not seeing Jesus as you're reading through your Bible, then you're missing the point. Because Jesus is the point. God revealed and fulfilled in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sin and who rose again. And through faith in him, you can be saved Saved from sin, saved from hell, saved from God's righteous judgment upon you because he poured it out on Christ and said, and if you put your faith in him, he will fulfill that promise of forgiveness and everlasting life with him because our God is faithful and he pours out amazing grace. That is the good news that these missionaries are bringing. That is what Paul is bringing to Thessalonica. And that's the good news that I bring to you today. Receive this good news. Put your faith in Christ. Sin no more and trust in God for eternal life. This is what Paul did as he opened up scripture. And he taught about how Christ needed to suffer and how Christ needed to die on the cross. Like I said, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans 3.23 says. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus himself said that the Christ should suffer, as was mentioned in Luke 24, because we have sinned. And so Paul took time to walk with the Thessalonians about why Christ needed to suffer, why Christ needed to die. It's an important thing. If Christ didn't die, then the punishment is still on us because no one's taken it yet. We would have to pay that price. Perhaps Paul pointed to a verse like Isaiah 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of the mankind. Jesus suffered physically. He was whipped, he was beaten, nails drove him through his hands and feet. He hung up on a cross and he died. But he also suffered in the sense of taking upon sins to himself bearing that guilt and wrath of God on himself, the gravity and weight that we just can't comprehend that a most holy, perfect God, a spotless lamb, would take the punishment that we deserved upon himself. Perhaps Paul pointed to Isaiah 53, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Right? Jesus' suffering wasn't an accident, though. 
This was God's sovereign plan to save, right? We'll look back to Genesis 3.15. This was the plan. Blood was continuing to be shed ever since the sin in the garden, but Christ, with Christ no longer does there need to be another sacrifice. It was finished on that cross. Amen? Yeah. Jesus, the Son of God, drank the cup of suffering and death for us, willingly, with joy, to redeem those who are his. That through faith in him, we receive grace and that secure promise of eternal life. And as we look to him as our example, we can see something purposeful and glorious even in our own suffering, even in our own struggle. And so do we try to avoid suffering at all costs or do we persevere and look to our Savior who suffered for us? As Romans 8 says, I consider the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And because Christ suffered, we can suffer well knowing that something greater is coming. Jesus needed to suffer and die. It was either him or us. But I would be amiss if I did not expound on the other side that Paul was trying to argue with the Thessalonians, that Jesus needed to rise from the dead. Right? Jesus' death is important, but Jesus, if Jesus didn't rise, then there's also an issue. This is an important truth that as Christians we must believe and rest on. If Jesus were not raised, we would not be here. We wouldn't be gathering together, praising and worshiping our God because we would still be without hope. We would still be without joy. We would still be without peace because the weight of sin against the holy God would still be upon us. And the promise of true life would not be there. If we died, that would be it. If God could not conquer death, what hope do we have that he can conquer anything else in our life? How can we trust his word to us and the promises that he's made if he was not faithful in that? But the resurrection of Jesus fulfills that. It puts a stamp of approval on that, that Jesus' sacrifice was enough, that it was sufficient, that he paid for it. Jesus would rise again, and that would be the victory that we have. God is sovereign over pow and powerful over life and death. God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. The promises that God has put were fulfilled. And Jesus was the perfect lamb, the way, the truth, and the life. Death has no victory nor sting on Jesus, and through faith in a risen Savior, it doesn't have it on us either. When we die, that is the beginning of life, new life with God forever. And so Paul, opening scripture, pointing them to scripture, showing them that this was necessary, that Christ suffered and that Christ rose again. He persuaded them to believe. Right? It's an important part that we need to look at, right? Because we do believe God saves. It's God who's changed his heart. It's God who saves. But God, in his amazing plan and wisdom, uses feeble people like us who are broken, who are sinful, to save others as we bring his word to them. He will work through us to save as we point to his word. As we spend time in God's word, as we open scripture together, God will use it. Paul gave everything he had to persuade these people to put their faith in Christ because he knew it was world-changing news. He knew it was good 
He knew it was good news. And so he pleaded. He was enthusiastic. He was heartfelt. I'm sure you could see it in his sweaty brow as he tried to proclaim again and again, pointing to Scripture with such, such enthusiasm. He was expressive in his hand and waving arm movements, saying, listen, look, look at what God has done. Paul goes three times to do this, again and again, to persuade them to believe as they look to God's word, to God's truth. And we see that some did believe. As we look at verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many great, uh, great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. People were saved. God works through his word to save people. They received God's word. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul actually writes to the Thessalonians saying, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. If there's ever a time that you feel unable to share the gospel, that's probably a good thing. Because... It's not your words that do it. You need to be trusting in Jesus, using his word, because it's his word that saves. We need to be able to point and explain scripture knowing that it's through the hearing of God's word that faith comes. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We need to point to God's word. This means we need to get into God's word. We need to be using God's word. God will faithfully use you as you depend on him and his word. Don't neglect good study and time in God's word, understanding and seeing and being in awe of a God who had saved us through his son that he sent. Be a master of God's word and be mastered by God's word. Because if we aren't, it begs the question, do we really trust that God's word is powerful? Do we really trust that God's word is true? Do we really trust God is faithful to work through his word to save someone that we think is too far gone and too far off? Do we trust that God can do this? Do we trust that God can use us as we open his word? Or do we try to soften the gospel? Do we try to share something that's not quite true? Do we hide away from telling people that they're sinful and they're in need of a savior because we're scared it's going to push them away. Church, I pray that we trust God's word to work, to convict, and to save. God is faithful, and God will do the work that he has willed, that he has purposed, as he works through us in our faith. It's important that we're in God's word Dwight L. Moody has this quote. He says, I prayed for faith and thought it would strike me like a bolt of lightning, but faith did not come. One day I read, now faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'd closed my Bible and prayed for faith, but I now began to study my Bible and faith has been growing ever since. Give the true gospel found in God's word as Paul did with the Thessalonians. It's world-changing because it's God's word. God is the one who can do it. And some will receive it with faith, but some may harden their hearts all the more. But that's not for us to decide. It's 
our role to share faithfully from God's word. As we continue in verse 5 to 9, we see this world-changing gospel continue to spread. But it's caused some issues. We see in verse 5, it starts with, but the Jews were jealous. See, we as humans have a difficult time with change. Even good things that happen, like I said at the beginning, because there's just big changes that happen, and it's scary, it's stressful, it's hard. But change is hard, especially when it seems to take away something of a comfort or a peace that we have. When we don't have what we want, we can get jealous of those who have it. Envious, sinfully passionate for our own interests to flourish in spite of those who oppose that in some way. See, these Jews were jealous. It was an ungodly jealousy because we do read that God is jealous. He's a jealous God. But he is creator God. All things are rightfully his and ought to be how he wants and desires. Right? He is jealous for his own. And he is deserving of all glory. And when he does not receive that glory that is due his name, that is worth to him, he is jealous for it. But there can be an ungodly jealousy. And that's what we're guilty of. It's crippling. It's destructive. Because it comes out of an attitude of selfishness and pride. It comes from an attitude of envy and wanting for our own. And so I implore you, church, do not continue to walk in ungodly jealousy. If you're sensing that, if you're seeing that, turn from it. Kill it. Pray that God would help you to walk out of that jealousy. Because it will lead down a road of hurt and regret. Repent of this jealousy because it is destructive, as we will see. See, the gospel was world-changing because one by one, God was changing people's hearts. God was changing people's world. The focus from their own world and their own life to him, and he is glorious and beautiful. The spiritual change elicits a physical change in one's life as a true believer will begin to grow and look more like Christ. They'll make changes in their life. They'll be living differently because God has done something amazing in them. He's changed their heart to serve and glorify him to walk in obedience to God because of what a Jesus has done as they're gifted with the Holy Spirit to walk in uh, building out these fruits of the Spirit. And so the Jews didn't like this change. They didn't like what the gospel was doing because they were losing power. They were losing influence. There's most likely pride involved. They thought that they were right and the gospel offended that. They got offended, so they went on the offense, and they did something about it. They acted out in vengeance, in malice, resorting to physical violence. They started to gather other people, wicked men of the rabble. They started to form these people. They're just kind of sticking around looking for a fight. They gathered them up, and they caused a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They caused a commotion, and they went and attacked the house of Jason. I kind of think of it like, those hockey or soccer players who are just bruisers, they're just bullies. They don't really want to play the game. They just want to beat someone up. And I'm sure you guys know of people like that. I was in a house league soccer uh, team, and that's, there was a lot of people like that. It was, it was bad. It was brutal. It's like they were playing American football more than actual soccer. But sadly, it sounds like many of the petty and destructive and divisive behavior that can happen within a church where people are acting out in jealousy and aren't actually united in the gospel 
which we should be united in. That's what we talked about when we were in Acts 15. But when you make it about something other than Christ, then the result is not going to be Christ-likeness. It's going to be world-likeness. We're going to be acting like the world. We're called to be different. And so they did all these things. They set the city in an uproar, and they go to the house of Jason, and they grab other believers, and they drag them out. You may question, who is this Jason guy? Well, that's a good question because this is the first time we've been introduced to him. He kind of just shows up. We're just introduced to Jason. But he seemed to be someone who had heard the gospel and responded in faith as Paul came and shared this good news. And there's been a change in his life. He now is um, living out his faith. He's bringing in uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy into his house, hiding them. And that's why the Jews were going after him. They'd probably heard that he was housing Paul and Silas. I'm sure they were claiming that he, uh, that he was some sort of claiming that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Lord and Savior, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and the Jews didn't like it. And so we see in verse 6 and 7, they drag Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. What a world change for these guys who had just put their faith in Christ. But they were shouting, the Jews were shouting about these men. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. What a testimony of the power of the gospel that comes even from the enemies, no less. They're claiming that the gospel is turning the world upside down. They see it changing their world. The reality is, is our world is in fact already upside down. It's horrific. It's dark. It's wicked. Evil. It's a sinful place with no regard for God and his glory and his kingship. The reality is, instead of upside down, God is really turning the world right side up. He's turning it exactly how it should be. The world fell when sin entered. Humanity lost, broken. This tainted image that they have. But through Jesus, our purpose to glorify God, to know and love him, is renewed and restored. And the world is turned right. See, brothers and sisters, we're not holding a feeble and weak message. We are holding the gospel, the good news of God. And its message is world-changing. As Pastor Chris shared last week, God's power overcomes the darkness of all kind. God is powerful, and his word is powerful, and it changes the world. And it's changing the world of these men. We see Jason as a perfect example of this. Though the Jews were coming after them, the Jews didn't like what was happening as Paul and Silas brought this message because people were starting to live out this gospel and sharing it. Jason houses them. We see a picture and work of Jesus in him. A few weeks, he wasn't knowing of the gospel or of Paul and Silas and Timothy and who they were, but now receiving them in his home, taking on attacks from this mob, getting physically dragged out and yelled at because of this faith in Christ. He's now taken action in his life. The truth has hit his heart, and he's living it out. What a great example of life changed through Christ. Jason was willing to suffer for Christ and for his brothers in Christ, just as Christ suffered for him, right? Christ-likeness. In order that they would continue and proclaim the good news of the gospel. 
He was dragged out in front of a crowd like his Savior. He was told he was going against Caesar like his Savior was told. And I'm sure Jason would have been willing to die for the faith and hope that his, uh, and for the hope that his Savior had given to him. So the gospel had changed Jason's world and flipped it right side up with Jesus as a true king. God's word is world-changing because it points us to Jesus. And so it may seem like they were against Caesar, that they were trying to flip this world upside down, but that was just the Jews' perspective because their eyes were not on God, they were on themselves. God's kingdom is not of this world, and Jesus made that clear when he was before Pilate, when he was about to be crucified. In John 18, Jesus says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is this truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So the reality is, is Christians are part of both kingdoms, at least temporarily. Under Caesar or under the government, we have certain obligations that involve material things. But under Christ, we have obligations that involve things eternal. Right? If Caesar demands money, they give it to him. But make sure that you also give God what he demands, which is your life, your whole self. This means that we live as God's citizens first, in God's kingdom, in his rule, in his command. But we respect and we obey and we honor those whom God has appointed over us. We live out in righteousness. We live out in respect and honor because that is what is bringing glory to God. That is our goal. That is our purpose as he has saved and sanctified us through Christ. And so Jason paid a cost. He paid a material cost, but he also paid all the more in a spiritual cost as he suffered for Christ. But he counted it worthy and a joy because his Savior counted it worthy and a joy. And we see this response to this world-changing message of the gospel is Christ-likeness. His action lived out in this truth of God's word as it changed his world and changed others around him. that those who would hear his word would also see the change that it brings. And so what, you may ask, what does this all mean for us? How do we apply this? How do we take this and leave from here with our worlds changed? See, as we look at this passage, we see that a word-centered gospel is a world-changing gospel. God's word is powerful. It's world-changing because it centers on the truth of Jesus, of who he is and what he has done. We are called to share that no matter what the cost for the sake of Christ. It's so important that we are in God's word because it's through God's word that the world is changed. Paul writes to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not need say anything. 
Church, I pray that this could be us. As we are bold in God's word, as we are bold in going to share the gospel, that it would go forth like a resounding trumpet, that people would hear the good news, that people's world would be changed as God works through his word and by his spirit to change a heart, to flip the world right side up, because God's word can do that. But it means a bit of searching in our own hearts. The first question is, have you first received this truth? As God's word, are you submitting and walking in it? Have you put your faith in Christ, as the Bible is pointing to, and how he has saved us from our sin, as he died upon the cross, and as he rose again? Do you believe that? Do you have your faith resting in that? I invite you, if you haven't, to do that today, to put your faith in Christ, to not try to save yourself because you can't. You're in need of a Savior. And God can change your world through his word, his powerful and good word. If you have taken that invitation, if you have put your faith in Christ, are you living that out in action? Are you living it out and sharing that good news? Do you actually believe that this news is good? Do you have those gospel glasses on to see those opportunities to share the gospel? Are you looking for connection to share the gospel? Are you living your life with your eyes closed from the mission that Jesus has given you? Are you bold in proclaiming this good news? Because it has changed your world and it can change others. Do you trust that God can do that? As you share that gospel, I encourage you, be sure that you are in God's word. Because it's God's word, as, you're cent- as it's centered on the gospel, that will really bring that change. We need to be sure we're in God's word. We need to be sure that we're learning from it, that we're digging into it, that we're feeding on it. Because it's not through our own words, it's not through our own truth or our own opinion, but God's powerful double-edged sword that cuts to the heart. Are you in that word? Do you know that word? And do you believe that it can truly bring world change? Let's pray.